You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello there. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani. And I had an email from somebody. You know, I'm always saying, if you've got a question for Dr. Gaudiani, then shoot me an email. Well, I get quite a few. And this time I got one from somebody asking that we could talk about medical issues affecting trans and non-binary individuals. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's Dr. Gaudiani. I am game to talk about this with you. And I think it's really important for me to start very slowly by saying I'm an expert in the medical complications of eating disorders and I have the great joy of taking care of a number of individuals who identify as either trans or non-binary. And I've done some research because of the chapter in my book on individuals who are from gender diverse or sexual diverse populations. Um, but this is not a point of expertise for me. And so I really want to say, uh, you know, I myself am cisgender and experience cisgender privilege and that I do not consider myself to be an expert in this topic, but I'm happy to share the little bit that I know and have great hopes that you, Tabitha, will bring somebody who's really from this group of patients to center their voice, their lived experience, and perhaps their professional experience here in ways that will be vastly superior to my own. So the first um, thing I'd like to ask then is you just mentioned that in the book that you recently published, and that I gather is doing phenomenally well, that there's a chapter on this topic, on this population in there. So I guess my first question is like, what, why? Ooh, well, that's a fantastic question. So um, anyone can have an eating disorder and there are certain populations that have specific risk factors that deserve to be highlighted. And some of those populations in particular have not received adequate evidence-based peer-reviewed research investigation. And so I thought it really important, even though, again, I'm, I'm by no means an expert, I consider myself an ally, or perhaps as someone likes to call it a co-conspirator, I am not in fact um, an expert, but I thought it was really important to share some of the data so that individuals who do identify as gender sexual minorities would be able to have representation. And so really your intention there is to, for because your, your book is mostly aimed at medical professionals, correct? So, Well, my book's aimed at actually at, at all clinicians who take care of people with eating disorders, yeah. for those with eating disorders themselves and for their loved ones. So it's actually not, it's, it's meant for everybody. And do you think that, that clinicians in, in general... It's, they, they need to have more awareness of more diverse populations. We all do. Mm-hmm. And so hence, actually, sort of calling that out, having a section in your book that's right. Yeah, <laughs> is, I think that that's just right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so whilst you were writing that section in your book, like if, if you can remember the section, what, what would you say that the main focus is around? Like what's, what are the 
what's the main content? Yeah. So, you know, I think for the purposes of today's podcast, we're talking a little bit more uh, about gender minorities, not about sexual minorities necessarily. It's probably a whole different, different podcast. Um, and I think that my hope was to highlight a sample case to talk about the prevalence of eating disorders in those who identify as trans and non-binary and to identify some of the real harm that physicians can do when sufficient awareness is lacking. Hmm. Can you give me some examples? Yeah, so let's imagine that an individual who is assigned female at birth and identifies as gender non-binary has developed an eating disorder and is working with a therapist in the community and the therapist is quite concerned about their medical health, uh, imagining that this individual uses the pronouns theirs and them. Um, they might go to the doctor and see a medical form in the waiting room that says gender male, female, with no querying of pronouns, or they might be said, discussed by the doctor, they might be told, oh, you know, you have an eating disorder? You look like a healthy girl to me, i.e. Um, and let's say that perhaps, as can occur, one of the sustaining features for their eating disorder, perhaps their caloric restriction or the purging, is to cause sufficient stress that the body stops menstruating because having a period feels gender dysphoric. The doctor in such a case might say, oh, you've lost your period. Let's make sure we get you on the pill to jumpstart your pill, to, your, to jumpstart your period. Those are the kind of things that are really catastrophically alienating, I think, to patients and not only result in worse health care, but actually result as a res you know in the in the course of alienating someone in in a great deal of psychological and maybe medical harm when you say it results in wor worse health care how are you defining health health care there well somebody who has been alienated and insulted perhaps implicitly or explicitly by the medical system is a lot less likely to go to a doctor if something's happening so if they have a fever or if they've got something that's really going on, they're more likely to postpone seeking appropriate medical care because of prior traumas. And that may well result in worse outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, furthermore, if someone does seek care and the clinician doesn't have adequate fluency or thoughtfulness around the, the type of individual that this person is, I, you know, for instance, the, the physician who says, let's put you on the pill to jumpstart your period. Well, that just misses the point completely. Um, and I think ends up with suboptimal outcomes just due to ignorance, even when there's not an intention willfully to exclude someone. Right. Because they might be thinking that they're doing the very best thing by that person. Right putting them on the exactly. pill so they get their period back and not understanding. Yeah, like you said, they're just completely ignorant. It's not because they're actually intentionally trying to do harm. Right. And yet, you know, medical care providers theoretically 
should be seeking to care for every person. You know, there's that old tension between intention and impact. The physician's intention might not have been to alienate and harm, but the impact occurred and we can't excuse that based on the whole, I didn't mean to, you know, at least beyond a certain point, we've really got to be aware of that as a, as a problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So that's that, I think that's, that's helpful to, as a sort of like base there. Um, just that question that we had written down, medical issues affecting trans and non-binary individuals with eating disorders. Well, Medical issues is a pretty broad term. So what comes to mind when you're even faced with that sort of question? Yeah. Well, first of all, someone who is trans and non-binary can have every single medical problem of someone who's cisgender. That's the first thing to say, of course, that the entire pantheon of possible medical complications will and may affect their bodies too. And um, I think then the question as as we've addressed minority stress in the doctor's office and that feeling of being invisible or rejected even worse because of how one understands themselves to be, then we've got making sure that someone actually can see the classic medical complications of eating disorders sort of that might affect any body, but then see it through a lens which is appropriate to the individual. So when I have a patient who is assigned female at birth and who identifies as gender non-binary, for instance, and as we've said in this example, if their period has gone away due to their eating disorder and nutritional rehabilitation will cause their period to return, I'm going to have a conversation with that individual if they welcome it about should we think of alternative ways of getting your period to go away? Should we think about an IUD? Should we think about something that helps to affirm your gender identity and permits you to progress in your recovery work? So I think that that's a really important example. Another uh, trans-specific medical issue that's quite interesting and important is it turns out that High dose estrogen of the sort a trans woman may well have chosen to take when she's transitioned causes, stay with me on this nerdy topic, phosphorus to be spilled into the urine. So let's say that a trans woman admits to an eating disorder program or is in the outpatient setting and they progress through nutritional rehabilitation, where we think about refeeding syndrome as characterized by low blood phosphorus levels. Because of the estrogen she's taking as a gender-confirming medication, she will actually have a higher risk of low phosphorus that persists much longer than her cisgender peers. And unless we know to look for that, most people are through a risk for refeeding syndrome within two to three weeks of really beginning to take in calories. There was a good paper written in a case study that showed that low phosphorus can go on for many more weeks. So let's be aware of that so that someone doesn't come to harm from clinically significant low phosphorus because we didn't know to check it. That's the kind of sort of 
very specific medical finding that's worthwhile, I think. Yeah, that's incredibly worthwhile, isn't it? As well, I think when we come back to the question of clinic paperwork, uh, you know, my COO, Amy Becker, has been enormously instrumental for our clinic getting better about this topic. Again, I'm not an expert, but we're really trying to get better. And all of our paperwork asks in the demographics part for sex, because if we're talking about medically relevant pieces of information, sex is male, female, intersex. That's sex. We also ask patients if they'll share their pronouns with us. And then if it feels clinically relevant in the course of how they wish to self-disclose at any point in their care here, they'll find a very warm, open, happy, positive staff to be listening to what their narrative includes. But I think that's important too. In fact, Amy even reached out to our electronic medical record to try to get them to change their verbiage from gender binary male, female, or even male, female, other, which doesn't cover it and really change it to sex. So there are little subtle details like this that I call subtle, but may feel existentially reaffirming or rejecting to someone for whom this is a major aspect of their life. Absolutely. Well, we could arguably say that the biggest medical threat to anybody is not wanting to go and see the doctor. And if you don't feel that if you don't even feel there's a starting point for making whoever your treatment provider is understand you then why would you go and see the doctor I, and that is something I hear all the time not just on this topic but many many just that you know I don't want to go to see the doctor because xyz and most of the time it is to do with identity stuff and actual you know they just don't get who I am. So therefore, what they're going to say to me is not going to be relevant to who I am. Yeah. And even beyond don't get who I am, they reject who I am. Oh, that too? They imagine that who I am is a source of problems for me when it may be my greatest pride and joy. You know, there's so much that we medical providers have to do better on this score. There are some good data that have emerged from the literature, and it's probably worth mentioning those data as far as prevalence of eating disorders and eating disorder behaviors in trans and non-binary individuals. One of the challenges, as we talked about at the beginning, is that the literature is inadequate from the get-go, but then even studies that are larger that seek to investigate the experience of the broadly defined LGBTQ plus community may not be sufficiently powered to investigate trans and non-binary individuals specifically. And so, again, we always need more research. But we've got, we've got some, and I'd love to share two studies, if I might, please. One of them is from the journal Transgender Health from 2018. And it studied 450 transgender adults in Massachusetts. And the breakdown of the uh, individuals in this study were that about a third were assigned female at birth and currently and identified as gender non-binary. About a third were trans men. 9% were assigned male at birth and gender non-binary and 28% were trans women. So quite a nice selection uh, across the board of, of different individuals. 
And interestingly, in this study, those who were assigned female at birth and identify as gender non-binary had the highest rate of self-reported and formally diagnosed eating disorders in their lifetime at 7.4%, which is quite a lot higher than the community averages. In addition, non-binary individuals were three times likelier to have had an eating disorder compared with trans-binary individuals. And, you know, one of the the thoughts behind that, and again, I, I don't get into this too much because I'm, I'm medical and I'm not mental health um, background, so I want to be really careful to stay within my scope. But it's really important that we understand and not pathologize why people would engage in eating disorder behaviors as they perhaps attempt to look like the stereotypical construct associated with their identified gender. You know, um, the like, of course you're doing this. Of course you are. This makes perfect sense why you would end up in these behaviors and to be very thoughtful and understanding. So that's that's one piece that I think is important. The other was a study of over 300,000 college students who were self-reporting. The second study is in the Journal of Adolescent Health from 2015. And they chose the population of cisgender heterosexual women as a comparison population for a sort of baseline for eating disordered behaviors. And in that uh comparison population, 1% had been diagnosed with an eating disorder in the last year, 3% had vomited or used laxatives in the last month, and over 3% had used diet pills in the last month, which is about what we consider to be typical for epidemiology. By contrast, transgender students were 200 to 400% more likely to use eating disorder behaviors than that comparison population. Cisgender heterosexual men were about a third as likely as the cisgender heterosexual women. Gay men in this study had about 1.5 times the formal eating disorder diagnoses or 150% more likely. And in this particular study, lesbian women had similar rates as the baseline population. So, you know, again, we have a study showing that transgender students have the highest prevalence of eating disorder behaviors compared to their peers. And yet the stereotype of someone with an eating disorder, which we know, we know, we know, we know is incorrect, is light skinned, smaller bodied, cisgender, straight, able, etc., a young. So once again, we are we are faced with the reality that our stereotypes are incorrect. So one of the things to think about as well is that physicians don't get much training on sexual and gender minorities. That's important. I, as I look back on my own medical training, I don't know that I remember a single dedicated lecture. It's been a, a while, but it was not a point of emphasis. So when we think about the medical setting into which these vulnerable patients are placing themselves, unless a medical provider has deliberately sought out an improved personal knowledge, they, there was not a, a structure in place for this to occur. And that matters. That matters as far as 
what kind of medical provider the individual will find themselves up against. Yeah. And so that's kind of a bit crazy to me that unless a, a medical provider went out and educated themselves or intentionally did, they wouldn't actually have much education on probably many topics, actually. I know that's relatively true for eating disorders as well. True. True. And not everyone can know everything, of course, but this feels like a population where physicians need to have a lot greater awareness. I myself, in all humility, continue to want to learn and grow, develop, challenge old old things in place that I'm not even aware of so that I can do better and be inclined to cause less harm. One thing I've learned in the course of my clinical practice, for instance, is if I misgender a patient, I have learned not to cause a microaggression by stumbling over myself to apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry. How can I ever forgive myself? I, can you ever forgive me? This is terrible. That's a microaggression. So to say a simple apology and acknowledgement and a reset feels much more thoughtful and appropriate because no patient should ever be asked to offer forgiveness for a transgression, you know, in that setting. Huge thank you to Dr. Galliani for taking the time to talk to me. I just love how Dr. G always is always open to talking about any topic that we can throw at her and always has insight. Just so much experience there. That's what that's what that is, isn't it? That's just that's experience of having worked with a lot of people and being open and listening. So, thank you. I'd love to continue this topic. If you have any ideas of people that I should talk to, reach out to, then you can email me. And if you would like to be a guest, then of course email me. My email is info, that's I-N-F-O, at Tabitha Farrar, T-A-B-I-T-H-A-F-A-R-R-A-R dot com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Cheers, and until next time, cheerio.